Hi, ParCast listeners. It's Vanessa with some incredible news. You can purchase your copy of our book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, available now at parcast.com slash cults. Cults is an expanded look at the people who led and followed the most radical groups in history, with an unflinching exploration into what happens when the most vulnerable recesses of the mind are twisted into the lowest forms of malevolence. Details not featured on our podcasts. We're so proud to bring you this fantastic compilation of stories, and we're forever grateful for your support. Without you, none of this would be possible, so thank you. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults to order today. Commonly known as the Sullivanians, the New York Post has called this group psychosexual. They were referring to the Sullivan Institute for Research and Psychoanalysis, founded in New York City in the late 1950s. The group was led by therapists who promoted communal living and taught that monogamy was the root of all misery. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I've not heard that one before. At its peak, the group had hundreds of members, including, at one time, notable names from the arts. But after a nuclear plant went into partial meltdown in 1979, paranoia started to mushroom throughout the group. And from there, the group slowly started to dismantle. everyone and welcome to Sinister Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Every week we're going to cover your favorite cults, faith followers and secret societies. We'll look at how some of the biggest secretive societies and cults have made their fortunes. And how they've also managed to run in plain sight and permeate into your everyday life. Today we're going to tell you about the Sullivan Institute and its founder, Saul Newton. We'll get into how he got his patients to live in same-sex accommodations and encourage them to break ties with family members. And we'll get into why his institute was accused of controlling members' lives, including who they slept with and the way they raised their children. Okay, I know it's called the Sullivanians, but I really kept reading it as like the Sylvanian, like the Sylvanian family. Yeah. Do you remember that? I do remember that. I also had... (laughs) the exact same thought Mm -hmm. it strikes me as a particularly European thing so maybe we should explain it yeah do do people in North America or the rest of the world not have Sylvanian families if you don't the Sylvanian families was a brand of toy kit Mm. um, and it was basically like imagine doll's houses and little toys but they're all animals wearing clothes they're all animals and you can have they can like go to school Mm -hmm. and the chemist It's kind of like bigger than a Polly Pocket, Mm -hmm. smaller than a Barbie house. Exactly. And all of the animals lived in like mixed species families. Yes. And the animals were very specifically animals that you would find in a like warren or a set. An English woodland. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Squirrels, rabbits, badgers. Yes. yes. Not like lions, tigers, birds. No, no, no. Very English countryside animals. That's the Sylvanian families. Yeah. 
not who we're talking about I'm today. Really, really, <laughs> oh, like suppressing the urge to just go on eBay and buy loads. Don't do that. Shall I get some for the office? <laughs> no, little, little baby ones. No, no? No, no. Why not? There's already too much stuff in here. <laughs> I'll have an anxiety attack if you bring <laughs> Salomanians into this. <laughs> Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. So let's get into how Saul Newton established his so-called psychosexual group. Saul Newton was born as Saul Bernard Cohen in 1906 and grew up in St. John's, New Brunswick, Canada. Saul went to the University of Wisconsin, where he got his bachelor's in philosophy. He then moved to Chicago, where he took social work courses at the University of Chicago, and where he also reportedly mingled with radicals, which in, like, the early 1900s were communists. Yeah. I would also say any university's got some radicals in it. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're at university and you're not doing something a bit radical, go home. Exactly. Like being on the front page of the Evening Standard. Precisely. Precisely, Hannah Maguire. So, yes, as I predicted, in 1933, Saul was affiliated with the Communist Party of the United States. He claimed to be a unionist, communist, an anti-fascist. In 1937, he fought in the Spanish Civil War, where he helped fight Nazis, who were supported by General Franco. After that, he also served in the United States Army in Europe during World War II. When Saul returned from the war, he studied psychotherapy in Manhattan, and he was influenced by new Freudian psychiatrist Harry Stack Sullivan. Harry Stack Sullivan developed a theory of personality which the American Psychological Association describes as, quote, the belief that people's interactions with other people, especially significant others, determine their sense of security, sense of self, and the dynamisms that motivate their behavior. Uh, the phrase, no duh, yeah. jumps to mind. <laughs> but hey, fair, man. someone's got to say it. Someone's got to say it's it. It's the olden dazels. They don't know that yet. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough, Harry. I'm sorry. They're too busy fighting fascism. Exactly. Someone's got to write it down. You're right. Saul included this in his philosophy, but he went a step further. He denounced the idea of a nuclear family, and according to his daughter's later essay on growing up with him, he also rejected monogamous relationships. Saul believed that the nuclear family was the source of all troubles and prevented individual growth. Oh, how very communist of him. I mean, Kind of. Yeah, I mean, the Communist Manifesto is very anti the nuclear family. So he's he's a purist. He's going for it. And Saul claimed that he studied with Harry Stack Sullivan when he was young. And that's why he felt compelled to carry on his teachings. However, the school that Saul would have studied with Sullivan at told New York Magazine in 1991 that Saul was never actually a student there. How embarrassing. Oh, that's awkward. That's awkward. It's awkward. And even though Saul had no formal training as a therapist, he founded the Sullivan Research Institute in 1957 with his first wife, 
Jane Pierce. Who I bet was thrilled, by the way. Oh, I bet. But God, is there anything? Well, there are lots of things, but that's up there in the things that are quite scary, which is somebody who has no training in anything related to how to do good psychotherapy, mm-hmm. doing psychotherapy. Yeah, and also... I Even think- the ones who knew how to do it at this time were doing a bad job. <laughs> that's very true. Obviously, the the 60s are a common, but the Kinsey Report would have just happened. Mm-hmm. So everyone's thinking about sex. Oh, in, yes, in a yes. way, they're like, oh, we can talk about it now. Yeah. We can say it. We can oh, say yes. that when it's too hot, I don't want to. You know? it's uh, <laughs> And that's very... So everyone's talking about it. It's, it's very exciting. exciting. Yeah, it's an exciting time to be a pretend psychoanalyst, for oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Prominent mental health experts, who had officially been connected to Harry Stack Sullivan, later made a point, however, of saying that Saul's teachings weren't similar to Sullivan's at all, and they weren't happy with Saul associating himself to Sullivan's name. In 1963, Saul and Jane wrote a book that detailed their practice. It was called The Conditions of Human Growth. New York Magazine described it as a dense tome that starts by saying, quote, humanness results from being raised by people. For God's sake. I know. Honestly, kill me. In 1989, New York Magazine reported that when the Institute started, the group was particularly interested in training people without previous degrees. Some therapists didn't need any degrees at all. Oh, good. I'm sure that didn't cause a hell of a lot of damage to everybody they spoke to in a professional, high-powered situation at all. Yeah, no, that's fine. Just put your fingers all in my brain. I don't need trained fingers. That's fine. The approach of the Solomon Institute coincided with the free love movement of the 60s. So he really primes himself for this. He's lining himself up. And they soon became known for having wild parties. And according to a 1988 People magazine article, they were also known for owning a, quote, sexually free summer house on Long Island. Again, I understand it's the 60s, but this is scary. The fact that they're like vulnerable people who maybe need some help with their mental health. Come here. And uh, we're just going to throw loads of parties and, um, yeah, sex. Yeah. That's that's worrying. And that in no way is going to expose you emotionally even further. Absolutely not. Coming up, we'll get into how Saul Newton taught members to break away from the notion of a traditional family and to embrace a sexually liberated life. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. I'm so excited to tell you that our first book is on sale now. This is such a big moment for the whole ParCast family, and we can't wait for you to read it. It's called Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. And you can purchase it today by visiting parcast.com slash cults. This is a passion project years in the making and only made possible by you. With your support, we've been able to get back to our storytelling roots. This time with a wealth of research and insights under our belt and intimate details not covered on our podcast before. Shame, exploitation, power. Cults unfolds the many motives behind groups like Nexium, Heaven's Gate, The People's Temple, and more, revealing eye-opening details which will surprise even the most devoted true crime fan. Visit parcast.com slash cults 
to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And on behalf of everyone here at Parcast, thank you for joining us on this journey. We hope you enjoy. So let's get into how the Sullivan Institute worked. Followers of Saul Newton and the Sullivan Institute tended to be left-leaning in their political views, Kelsa They were also well-educated and held good jobs like doctors, lawyers, and computer programmers, but not all of them. The Institute also attracted people who were into reformist politics and sexual freedom. One former member said that the group was aiming towards a non-nuclear, no-weapon world. How's having a sex longboat or whatever they had <laughs> helping with that? A sex house on Long Island. <laughs> oh, is that a sex it? longboat? They're not Vikings. <laughs> Sexy Vikings. Sexy Vikings on their longboats <laughs> in Long Island. Fighting for non-nuclear worlds. Yeah, they're just, you, you know what, they're like no nuclear anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, sure. Except sex. Nuclear sex. What's nuclear sex? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just vibing. (laughs) It's also been reported that members were instructed to give most of their money to the group. Uh Uh-oh. I'm not going to do the wind chime. (laughs) Insert wind chime. (laughs) As we mentioned earlier, followers were told that family ties were at the source of mental illness, which, to be fair... Uh, Yes. Quite a lot of the time is true. It can help or it can hurt. Yes. And they also said that for a person to fully develop in their life, that they would have to break ties with their family, which again, sometimes true. In 1988, former members told the Washington Post that before the 80s, therapists at the Institute would often encourage patients to end their marriages. But members could enter new marriages if it meant that it was to get them something in return, like health insurance. So romantic. But but fair enough, honestly. Yeah. The Post also reported that members, on average, had to attend three therapy sessions a week. And in therapy, they talked about their dreams and secrets to Saul or to another therapist. Oh, that's very handy, isn't it, for Saul and the other therapists? They get to know all of your secrets. Well, when you've got no one else to talk to. Mm -hmm. Because you haven't got your family or spouse anymore. You're going to have to tell someone and your insurance broker isn't going to give a shit. Most members of the Institute lived in group apartments on the Upper West Side. According to the New York Times, they also had different sex partners, which they could switch up nightly if they wanted. And married couples didn't live together. The Washington Post spoke with former members who also claimed that they would go on regular dates with each other, which they kept track of in a diary. These dates didn't always involve sex, but the members were advised not to go on more than two dates with the same person each week. And this was to avoid anyone becoming possessive. It's like a a weird dating manual Mm. for like, some bits of it just read like a a dating manual from Cosmo where it's like, don't go on a date with him more than twice a week or you're going to seem really desperate. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Or it's just like how to be a (laughs) fuckboy. With a sex longboat. Some members reportedly lived in same-sex apartments, and there could be up to 15 to 20 roommates per building floor. I can smell it from here. 
Oh, God. I was actually quite enjoying when they were like, people didn't live with their spouses. And I sort of assumed they were all living alone in apartments, which sounds very nice. Oh, no. Mm -mm. Children, according to ex-members, were to be raised mainly by babysitters. And parents were allegedly only allowed to see their kids one or two hours a day and one night a week which isn't going to have any kind of negative impact on those children at all. No, once again, again, he's taking this like straight from the communist manifesto where he's just like, you don't need to raise your kids. You do other things like work Mm. and the state will take your kids and they'll raise them because they know how to raise them properly. So he's running his own little fully fledged communist whatever inside an apartment building. (laughs) It was also recommended that kids born into the group should be sent to boarding school. One former member claimed that he was told to take an infant away from its mother because, quote, the mother wasn't fit. And allegedly, permission was even needed to give birth. That's interesting. So they don't mean permission was needed to get pregnant, but to give birth. Yes, right. Well, you've got to put them somewhere and there's very cramped in those apartments. It is very cramped, but once it's in you, it's got to come out. And I don't think they wait around for permission to be granted, which isn't, oh, they mean not literally give birth. They mean to get pregnant. (laughs) We don't know. Maybe both. (laughs) So one former member of the Institute alleged that they were expected to sleep with different partners at least five nights out of seven. Fucking hell. That's just too much. Too much. That's too much. They were also reportedly not allowed to be in exclusive relationships. But... They could if Saul approved of it. In response to these allegations, Saul Newton went on the record in 1986 to say that patients were not required to break ties with their families. He also denied that the Institute encouraged extramarital affairs. But he did admit to having sex with some of his patients. Sure, why not? If members broke any of the Institute's rules, one former member claimed that Saul could fine them up to $10,000. In a 2015 article about the group, Gothamist noted that in the 1970s, membership grew significantly and the group reportedly took on a more authoritarian vibe. And according to Gothamist, some think that Saul's second wife, Joan Harvey, who died in 2014, may have been part of the cause for the change. It was allegedly Joan's idea to merge the group with a, quote, political theatre collective called the fourth wall. Joan reportedly made most of the group's patients and therapists of the Sullivan Institute into due-paying members of the fourth wall. Well, we've seen it before, but usually they're like, I'm going to start a, I don't know, recycling plant or tomato picking shack and you have to come work there. This is the most bourgeois, middle-class yeah. shit I've ever heard. I'm going to start a political theatre collective and everyone in the group has to join and pay a fee. Yeah, to me, that I keep. Yeah. And by the way, I'm the lead in every production and our first show is Mother Courage. <laughs> I've seen it all before. And she made so much money of uh, these Jews she's collected from literally everybody under her power. That meant that the group signed a lease to a theatre in downtown Manhattan, which is famously not a very cheap place to have a theatre. But previous tenants refused to leave the building, presumably because they were like, you'll do political theatre in this bitch over my dead body. But some of the Sullivans raided the space and destroyed the previous company's stage sets. There's like a theatre war going on. 
I wonder if they had a dance-off. I know. I would expect a dance-off and some uh, yeah. jazzy music playing I'm in the background. I'd be disappointed if Absolutely. there was no dance-off. A former member recalled how they barricaded themselves in and the cops came. And the ex-member said, quote, Saul wanted to teach people how to stand up to the cops. He liked that kind of confrontation. Such a little bitch. I'm all for theatre, I really am. But um, mm-hmm. barricading yourself in a theatre because you want to do a production of Mother Courage that I've just made up is a bit unreasonable. <sighs> Great show. Sigh. Great show. Size. Over time, the Institute became affiliated with some well-known names from the arts world, including the singer Judy Collins, although she didn't live in group accommodations. <laughs> I bet she fucking not. didn't. Of course not. I'm a rich communist. Exactly. I'm a champagne socialist. I mean, Leave yes. me alone. And there were more big names because the writer, Richard Price, was at one point associated with the theatre group. In later years, he wrote the book Clockers and also wrote for the show The Wire. When asked in 1988 by the Washington Post about his time with the Sullivanians, Price said, quote, I haven't seen anybody in that scene for over a decade and then declined to further comment. Up next, we'll get into how Saul got tangled up in child custody lawsuits and allegations of misconduct. Okay, let's get into how Saul Newton's free-loving group fell out of love. In 1979, when the United States experienced its worst nuclear accident in its history at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania, around 200 Sullivanians fled to Florida. They believed New York City was going to be destroyed. Now for context, Three Mile Island was just over three hours from the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And after the accident, it's estimated that around 80,000 people fled the area. According to what one former member told New York Magazine, When the Sullivanians returned from Florida a few weeks later, many members left because the group had developed a paranoid bunker attitude. Yeah, that's killing all the sexy vibes. Yeah, yeah. The I was here for theatre and sex. (laughs) Sounds like my university experience. (laughs) I also developed a bunker attitude. (laughs) Some members were reportedly given radiation detectors and they monitored strontium levels in milk. The group even started their own food co-op. Dietary restrictions were enforced, and they were given beepers. They also bought escape vehicles, including five buses, an ambulance, and half a dozen motorbikes. Additionally, they had a property in upstate New York, where one member said that he was told to build, quote, a secret steel-lined room with a quarter-inch plates. To be fair. Yeah, everybody's got to have a bunker. Yes, and also... It's not like the reaction to Mm. that nuclear disaster was completely isolated to the Sullivanians. And also, it's not like it wasn't in response to something actually happening. Yeah, right, exactly. So they later made a documentary in which the Sullivanians predicted people would suffer the after effects of the Three Mile Island disaster for years to come. In 1983, former members said the group began to temporarily adopt so-called AIDS rules, And, of course, the AIDS crisis in the 80s created fear amongst many Americans at that time because there was so much misinformation surrounding it. 
especially because it was a new disease. So the group's rules were as follows. Members were not allowed to eat in restaurants. Members were required to wash their dog's paws when coming in from a walk. They had to take an AIDS test, which was given by the group's own doctors. And members had to leave their shoes at the front door when entering accommodations. By the mid-80s, according to Gothamist, the group owned about $12 million in property. And this included their place in upstate New York, a house in Vermont, and two buildings on the Upper West Side. And their long sex boat. And their long sex boat, obviously. Again, for a group that's like, oh, communism, those are all nice places. Oh, yeah, definitely. And also for a group that are so concerned with sex, none of their AIDS rules are about sex at all. I was going to say, I was like, washing your dog's paws is one thing. Why are we not talking about the sex longboat (laughs) and all the communal sex and all the like mixing partners every single day? (laughs) Sure. Cool. In 1985, some members of the Sullivan Institute broke into a nearby apartment building where they beat some tenants with sticks. They also destroyed a sink, toilet and television set. They're probably wondering why on earth do they do any of this? Well, it was reportedly for revenge, because they believed the people who lived there threw paint on the Institute's wall. Yeah, it's sort of elevated from bunker attitude to the warriors. Like, it's uh-huh, just not, uh-huh. um, not, not a good vibe. No, this is killing everybody's libido. <laughs> the group then began to disperse in the late 80s, following two child custody battles involving members. The public attention brought to light the group's unusual child-rearing practices. In 1988, a former member, who was also a therapist at the Institute, told the Washington Post that he, quote, did things to people's lives that can never be repaired. In that same Washington Post article, another ex-member said that when he left the Institute, Saul called and threatened him. The former member recorded the conversation and used it at one of the child custody hearings. On the tape, Saul asked the member to disclose his location, and Saul can be heard saying, quote, If I have to go to the work of mobilizing 200 people to find you, believe me, I will find you, we'll get you. Ooh, right, Liam Neeson. Yeah, I was going to say, a bit taken, all right. Saul Newton died in December 1991 at the age of 85. During his lifetime, Saul married six times and had 10 children. In Saul's New York Times obituary, his eldest daughter described him this way, quote, His ideals were lofty. Their results are for others to judge. He was very bright and creative, charismatic and definitely difficult, handsome, attractive to women, and tyrannical. If someone writes tyrannical in my obituary, which let's face it, they will, (laughs) because it's not going to cast the best impression, is it? But I suppose if your dad happens to be a horrible bastard, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to write something to that effect, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, she had to say it. Yes. I think it's like, I'll say it before somebody says it for me. Mm. I'll call him tyrannical. But I'll also say he he was pretty good looking and the women liked him. Yes, right, yeah. She does sort of cancel out. I have to say, usually on this show, we start off with... You know, some some pretty honourable ideas like yes. racial equality. Light, a light peppering of socialism, maybe. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, quite literally the only episode where I haven't bought into any of it. No, he's just like, just got his hands on a copy of the Communist Manifesto and he's like, I'm going to do all this, yeah. but in an apartment building. Yeah. And it's going to be great. And I'm going to be the leader. Yes. And then he does it. No king, no king. <laughs> I will be king. Precisely. 
<laughs> so that is that little known case, I would say, of the Sullivanians. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we'll be back next week with another great episode. And we wanted to mention that for today's episode, we referenced reporting from New York Magazine, The New York Times, Gothamist, People Magazine, and an essay by Esther Newton that appears in the anthology, To Me, He Was Just Dad, by Joshua David Stein. Remember to follow Sinister Societies on Spotify to get a brand new episode every single week. You can listen to this and all other episodes of Sinister Societies for free, exclusively on Spotify. And if you like this show, you can follow at Parcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us and like learning about horrible, horrible pieces of shit, you can come over to Red Handed, which is our mothership, The Ridge, where we have a two-parter on Jimmy Savile that we did last year. And according to the, the folks on Twitter, it's much better than the Netflix one. Well, there you people go. People said it with their mouths. Well, with their fingers on Twitter. Um, if there's one thing I know, it's people on Twitter are always right about everything. <laughs> so come listen to Red Handed and our two-parter on Jimmy Savile anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And we'll see you there or here or both next time. Bye. Sinister Societies is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It's produced by Kristen Acevedo, Gemma Waters and Tracy Levy. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Jamie Ryan. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro. Research by Chelsea Wood. Fact-checking by Laurie Siegel. And we're your hosts, Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala. Listeners, remember to visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale today, and I can't wait for you to dive in. Nexium, The Branch Davidians, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults takes you beyond the headlines for an intimate look at the sordid beginnings and deadly ends of the most radical groups in history. Details never heard on our show before. If you love our cult series or any of our true crime podcasts, this book is for you. Without your loyalty and support, none of this would be possible. So we truly hope you enjoy. Visit parcast.com slash cults to order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's on sale and ready to read right now. Order today at parcast.com slash cults. Cults.